and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 162. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now we put out a poll on our Instagram stories and we asked for a few questions that we could answer on today's podcast. So that's new. <laughs> yeah, we only do it every what fortnight, mm. <laughs> 26 times a year, you'd say. But Jack, we're going to jump into this first question. It says, is it true that the more your veggies are boiled, the less nutrients they will have once cooked? Yes, in in most cases, depending on the extent you are cooking your vegetables. There are a few exceptions, like some nutrients actually become more bioavailable when you cook your vegetables. Uh, there are other nutrients or phytochemicals such as sulforaphane, which is in particular cruciferous vegetables like broccoli, which if you cook them, essentially it actually reduces their bioavailability. Mm. So that's why it's good to eat some some raw broccolini. I don't think many people eat raw broccoli, but... Not unless you're on a raw food diet. No, yeah, that's correct. So the reason why boiling your vegetables can... And I would say boiling in particular will potentially lead to some loss of nutrients is because there are two main types of vitamins, water-soluble vitamins and fat-soluble vitamins. So when we boil our vegetables, then it does allow those water-soluble vitamins to become soluble in water, of course, and therefore it's kind of potentially going to leach out and get into the water, essentially. Mm -hmm. And the ones that you're looking at there are really your B-complex vitamins. So if you were to boil up a bunch of green beans and they might have a few B vitamins in those green beans and then you drain them, you could potentially be draining away a few B vitamins. And also we know that there's nutrients of water-soluble vitamin like vitamin C. It's not only water-soluble, but also it is quite sensitive to heat. So vitamin C, you're not just going to find it in an orange or a capsicum. Vitamin C is pretty much in every fruit and vegetable that you're going to eat to some degree. And if you heat that shiz up, unfortunately, you're going to lose a little bit. But it is certainly a case of you win some, you lose some. Because you mentioned that there are some nutrients that when you actually cook that food, it actually makes that nutrient more bioavailable. And an example of this would actually be lycopene, which is commonly found in tomatoes. So lycopene, it is a type of antioxidant, which means that within the body, it helps to repel free radicals and it can help with things like skin protection. And it's also been studied quite extensively in terms of cancer research, particularly prostate cancer. But lycopene, this antioxidant found in tomatoes, it's actually more bioavailable when the tomatoes are heated and cooked. So lycopene is actually going to be higher in processed tomato products compared to if you were to just eat a fresh tomato. But on the other hand, tomatoes are also a good source of vitamin C. But if you heat up a tomato, then you're going to lose a little bit of the vitamin C, but you're going to gain some lycopene. So you win some, you lose some. That's why it's probably a good idea to eat a wide variety of fruits and vegetables, both cooked and raw. Yeah, and I don't, it's not something to stress over. Like, I think as dietitians, when we give recommendations to clients in terms of their fruit and vegetables, we don't say, okay, you have to eat a specific number of vegetables cooked and then you have to eat these ones raw. It, for most people, it's just about eating enough 
fruit and vegetables, mm-hmm. particularly vegetables. And I think we are splitting hairs when we start kind of, yeah, dissecting how we're cooking them <laughs> as opposed to just focusing on eating enough. Yeah. Like I don't really eat any raw vegetables at the moment. Mm. It's, it's exclusively cooked. Yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely not a case of how dare you boil your potatoes instead of baking them. Mm. <laughs> Pretty happy if someone's going to eat some taters and enjoy them. <laughs> but I guess if you wanted to get somewhat the best of both worlds and you wanted to have some boiled vegetables and also retain a few of the nutrients that might have been leached out into that water, maybe it's a case of you need to make something like a soup and you need to drink the broth or you need to use that water to make some sort of gravy for your food, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. I guess there's ways around it. but. Again, that's what's great about nutrition is that it's not just fruits and vegetables that obviously have these sort of nutrients. Like B vitamins are very high in our whole grains. They're very high in meats as well. So if you lose some because you boiled a few vegetables in a pot, then, you know, just have some whole grains at your dinner and you'll be sweet. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's all comes back in a roundabout way with nutrition. Mm -hmm. As long as you have a nutritious diet overall, then as you said, if you naturally eat whole grains, which you should be doing, then you're going to be covering all your bases. Yeah. I think you're really only running into real trouble if you set your food on fire Mm. (laughs) and you're actually eating like a lot of charcoal burnt food, then a lot of that, you know, that can run into some potential issues. Mm. (laughs) You're going to need a lot of fresh vegetables or at least a lot of antioxidants to cancel out all of those carcinogens that you'd be consuming. Yeah, that brings up a whole nother area of like, yeah, basically carcinogens and mm-hmm. AGEs. Yeah. So if you're putting things on the Barbie, then uh, keep an eye on it. Yeah. I think uh, there often is some sort of debate about how bad is burnt food, like a bit of grilling on the, on the steak or a bit of blackened bit or eating burnt toast even. And I think sure once in a while is completely fine. But if you are someone who genuinely likes like that burnt little bit on food, Mm. it's probably actually better not to, (laughs) you need to like it. (laughs) You need to change. (laughs) We're just kidding. Enjoy your charcoal chicken every once in a while. Hey guys, just a reminder that we offer coaching services, which you can find on our website by searching the bodybuilding dietitians on Google or via the show notes below. We coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal. All right, Jack. Well, this next question, it says, I've been lifting for 10 years and I have no more gains. What are your recommendations to assist? Mm, Well, this is aptly suited for me because I've been lifting in the gym for about 10 years as well. Yeah, a whole decade. And lo and behold, it looks like you're still making a few gains here and there. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm the best person to answer this. So (laughs) I'm gonna give a pretty average analogy and I don't really know anything about like race cars, but I'm gonna use them as an analogy. So I guess when we look, look at race cars, we don't just look at the engine, do we? Like the engine is just one component, but we also might look at the aerodynamics of the car, maybe the wheels, maybe the weight of the car as well, trying to make it a certain weight. And of course there's the driver too. So how skilled are they? Hmm. So there's multiple components in terms of what we might look at a race car to enhance its speed around the track. And the exact same applies to muscle gain. So I think often when people visually do not think they're gaining muscle, like the average person might say, oh, you probably just aren't training hard enough or your, your workout, it must be an issue with your workout. And 
using that analogy, like the training is, is just one component. And then we can just, we can even break the training down into different components as well, like intensity, like volume distribution, etc., frequency uh, at which you're training your muscles. Uh, but then of course there's the lifestyle options, which are going to mainly be like sleep. I would say sleep is probably the most important lifestyle variable for gaining muscle. And then probably maybe stress would be uh, second to that. And then of course we have nutrition, which is a whole different ball game altogether. And then we can break that out into like, whether you've been at maintenance this whole time, if you've been at maintenance for 10 years, I'm not surprised that you're not really noticing too many muscle gains mm -hmm. or changes in muscularity. Uh, and then we could break it down into protein, how nutrient riches your diet, etc. So what I'm trying to say is there's a whole different assortment of variables to examine as to why you might not be gaining muscle or noticing it. I guess the other blatant kind of answer as well is maybe you are gaining muscle, but you just aren't realizing it, mm. which is totally uh, possible if you are uh, holding a decent amount of body fat, like anywhere from like 12 plus percent body fat. I would say that it can be difficult to actually assess whether you're gaining muscles in certain areas. So like, I think the, the, the thing is, this is where coaches are, are super important and super useful because that's kind of the role of a coach or at least a good coach is to be like okay what sort of variables can we analyze here uh, to ensure that you are still progressing mm -hmm. and so on and so forth and i would say this is a this is like a, a, a the perfect scenario as to why someone should use a coach mm -hmm. even if it's for like a six to eight week period to ensure that they're heading on the right track. Yeah, I completely agree. Because I think if you are just completely a lone wolf and you're never consulting with anyone else, or you, your vision does somewhat get blurred. And you may actually fall into that mindset of thinking that you've completely exhausted your options and you are doing everything. You're maximizing and optimizing absolutely every single variable. And you truly have reached your ceiling of genetic potential and you've just capped out that you can't grow any more muscle. Mm -hmm. That's where it's really valuable to consult with someone or have some discussions with other people in this space. And they can actually point out a few things like, hey, like they can kind of conduct a little bit of a questionnaire. Are you doing this? Are you doing that? And then it makes you think like, ah okay mm. <laughs> so perhaps there's a few other ways that i can speed up my car around the racetrack eh? yeah <laughs> i but i think that we also just have to recognize that rate of natural muscle gain is going to be relatively slow once you surpass those like first few newbie stages of your lifting career and what i've heard quoted in the literature is that if you are optimizing all of your variables and you've got all your ducks in a row in terms of the quality and the intensity of your training, your recovery, your nutrition, everything, you're probably only going to be able to synthesize around 10 grams of skeletal muscle mass per day, give or take. So let's say 10 grams per day, then you've got around 70 grams per week. That equates to about 3.6 kilograms of muscle mass per year, give or take. Of course, these are just relative numbers, 3.6 kilograms of actual muscle mass per year if you were optimizing everything. But then you have to take into account that no one optimizes everything. Everyone has some sort of flaw in the system. Even you and me, we try to optimize a whole bunch of stuff, but we're not going to sit well, here. We compete. That's not optimal for muscle. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a great point, right? Because even then, if you're actually trying to build a lot of muscle mass every single year, you have to factor in that 
okay, there are actually going to be times in the year where I won't necessarily be in a calorie surplus and I won't be maximizing my rate of gain. And when you do enter into a competition prep and you devote yourself to, let's say, a two-month pre-prep phase, and then you've got a six-month comp prep, and then you've got probably two to four months of a recovery phase. That's up to an entire year that you're probably not really optimizing muscle gain right there. Mm, For sure. Yeah. And 10 years as well, we have to think about the sport of bodybuilding. When do people really hit their peak and their prime? If someone starts lifting weights when they're 15 years old, they're not going to reach their genetic ceiling and potential for maximally building muscle mass when they're 25. They're probably going to hit that with their like 45 if they stay consistent. So just because you've been doing it for 10 years doesn't mean that the race is over. Like you can keep going for a few more decades if you stick at it. Mm. Yeah, I would say in the past year, this I probably made the most progress than I have in maybe since 2016, I would say. Mm. Yeah, and that's how many years ago? Like a solid five, six years ago now. Mm. But obviously because there's a hell of a lot more education now that's accessible in this space, people are collaborating and talking to each other, just like strategies that surround obviously being able to maximally build muscle and being able to retain that muscle mass as well when someone undergoes something like a comp prep. That's why you'll actually hear some like really elite natural bodybuilders talk about how they'll get on stage every few years and they'll actually still be a pretty similar body weight. And it's actually a matter of they've probably built a little bit more muscle mass during their improvement seasons. But the reason why they're a similar body weight, but they're coming in even leaner is because of their strategies and protocols. They've actually had better muscle retention during that dieting phase, which I've always found to be really interesting. Yeah, for sure. Especially potentially some of the more mature bodybuilders who prepped 10 years ago when there wasn't quite as much information out there. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, the foundations still, uh, uh, still apply anyway, and hopefully this has helped the listener Mm. and some other people with kind of examining those variables. But that's, as I keep saying, like not, not to kind of try and get us more inquiries, Mm. but like, that's why coaches exist. That's why we have a job in the industry. Exactly. Ultimately, if you feel like you're stuck and you've exhausted your options, but you want to keep going, Just reach out to someone who's well-educated and you trust to get a second opinion and have a discussion around these things and maybe point out a few things that you can't quite see. Mm, For sure. All right. Next question, Jack. Is it harder for taller people to build muscle compared to shorter people? Yeah. So we were discussing this earlier today and... Before we delve into some more of the like sciencey stuff, the, some of the more in-depth research that we did, I was actually just thinking about this logically. And obviously, taller people have more surface area. Their, their muscles are likely to take up a larger surface area mm. on their body. So therefore, if anything, I would argue that taller people would have more potential for growing muscle because they are just bigger people overall. Mm. It depends. Like they could be very, very like unlucky and they could have like a super long neck or really, really long ankles. And that's why they're taller. But I think for the average person, they likely have like longer femurs 
Uh, they're going to have bigger legs. They're mm. going to have maybe longer arms as well, mm. a longer torso, which means more muscle on their back and mm. on their chests and on their abdominal region as well. But it highly depends on your skeleton as mm. well, because even though you might be a tall person, if you don't actually have thick, strong bones and really good bone mineral density, we know that there is crosstalk between the bones and the muscles within the musculoskeletal system. So if you want to have a good amount of muscle mass and you have thick bones, that usually requires you to have more muscle mass as well, particularly because calcium is actually a nutrient that's heavily involved in skeletal muscle contractions. And where do we get calcium from? Where's the biggest store of it in the body? It's within the bones which I think is really cool. So there's cross between those, but- Ideally, we don't wanna be drawing calcium from our bones though. Yeah, yeah, but you require it. That's why it's a, it's a storage system within the bones for when you require it. Because mm. calcium is involved in nerve conduction, it's involved in muscular contractions, it's even involved in insulin synthesis and insulin release from the pancreas. So calcium, important stuff. Eat your dairy products or calcium fortified products, but when you actually have a blood test, calcium within the blood is so tightly regulated and controlled because it's one of our electrolytes. That's why if you have a blood test, for example, that's not necessarily the best way to test, am I getting adequate calcium in my diet? Rather, you should have a DEXA scan so you can see your bone mineral density to actually see what's the integrity of your bones. Anyway, that is going way off track, <laughs> uh, talking about bones and calcium. But what I was trying to get at is that you need thick, strong bones with high levels of bone mineral density to then have big muscles surrounding those bones. But we also have to think that everyone is unique in terms of their genetic makeup, their muscular architecture, how long are their muscle bellies, and then how long are the actual tendons that attach those muscle bellies to people's bones. So for example, let's say someone has all of their extensors within their forearm, right? Let's say someone did not necessarily win the genetic lottery pool and actually has shorter muscle bellies within their forearm, but then they have really long tendons. You know how when you see someone's forearm and they can like move their fingers and you see like little things flickering? Mm -hmm. Well, that's generally people's tendons. But if someone was like, I just wanna get jacked forearms, no matter how hard they tried, if they've got really short little muscle bellies. Well, I think calves are the best example, aren't they? Yeah, calves are a fantastic other example. Like no matter if you go to absolute town trying to train that muscle group, it just probably won't hypertrophy nearly enough as someone who's got really long muscle bellies that they can really cover more surface area rather than just having like one muscle belly and hypertrophying that in one spot, but then you've got this really long tendon. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, coming back to the, the tall situation, I mean, when we look at some really good bodybuilders, a lot of them are tall, mm. but I would say more of them are of the moderate height to short. Mm. And I think that just comes down to shorter people, maybe there's a, I don't know exactly, I'm a dietitian, not like a, a doctor or a human physio physiologist, but... Well, you are a bodybuilding coach. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would think that it kind of makes sense to me that shorter people have a bit more muscle covering that area. Mm. Like they have maybe less tendon length and more mm. muscle length. 
mm-hmm. or longer muscle bellies, essentially. Potentially. I think it's really just comes back to this being a sport of illusions. Mm. And generally, well, yeah, if someone is, yeah, if someone is smaller and they're training really hard, obviously with the more muscle mass that they build, they are just going to look more condensed. Yeah. But then is that as, is that because they have more favorable muscle insertions and more or longer muscle groups in correlation with their size? Mm, Potentially. I think perhaps, I think again, it's the surface area. So obviously if you've got a smaller person, they are going to have less surface area on them than a taller person. Mm. But obviously someone with a taller frame, people always say, I've really got to fill out my frame. So ultimately- Yeah, we're saying the same thing essentially. Yeah. Just in different ways. I think like if you're talking about absolute terms, a taller person should generally be able to build more absolute muscle mass. Mm. That's why they will generally weigh more. But if you actually put them next to a shorter person on a bodybuilding stage, because the smaller person, they will have those like more bubbly muscle bellies, right? They just might be more aesthetically favored Mm. and more appealing to the judges because it is more condensed rather than, yes, you've got more muscle mass on your arms and your legs, but it's just so goddamn stretched out. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's why people who are taller maybe think that they aren't Mm. as blessed when it comes to muscle gain, but Mm. it's just that sport of illusions, as you said. Yeah. But muscle fibers, they're massive, you know, like, but the thing is, is if you've got really long fibers in the body, we can only hypertrophy our muscle fibers. We can only make them bigger. We can't actually grow more, but they are very long. So essentially if you've just got it really stretched out, it's ultimately going to create that illusion. If you're standing on stage next to someone who is shorter, that you aren't quite as muscly as the shorter person, but in absolute terms, you actually are more jacked. Yeah, you have more muscle. Yeah. Or you likely do. Yeah, so in that case, you know, you might lose the show or you might come second. Depends how many people are in the category. If you're not winning, you're losing. But you're not you, first, you you're win last. In, you win in terms of, hey, I've actually got more muscle mass than you. So you can take home something. Mm. <laughs> All right, Jack, this next question. This one says... What are your thoughts on adding phylum husk to yogurt or oats to help with appetite? I'm always hungry. Yeah, so this might not be the answer that you're looking for, but I would initially ask a question first. So, and that question would be like, why is your appetite so high? Mm. Because I've certainly been hungry enough before where I've wanted to add oat bran or phylum husk to my meals, but Mm. I was in a competition prep. And yeah, so essentially the, I would ask if I could ask this listener, like why, why are they so hungry and what is causing them to, to be hungry to that extent? Like, are they doing a bodybuilding show or are they just trying to lose some weight? Like there's not really necessarily a, a right or wrong answer mm. that stands out just more out of interest for me. And then we can kind of, and that, this is me thinking as a, a coach slash dietitian as well. Then we can start to piece together like how we can help it because ideally we don't want to be hungry like that forever because that's no way to live Mm. so for example if that person is undergoing a weight loss phase or potentially in comp prep then sure a certain amount of hunger is completely normal and do i think that adding phylum husk is the way to go 
like potentially depends what their total daily fiber level is mm. if they're already eating a lot of fiber then it's probably not necessarily it probably won't help very much and you're probably just trying to scratch that itch for food focus which isn't necessarily going to help you mm. in the long run either that's what i was going to say too in that mm. it gets to a point where there are no silver bullets so if you're already eating a diet that's relatively high in food volume and satiating foods like yogurt in itself is a very satiating food if you find that you're still hungry you know adding a tablespoon of phylum husk to your yogurt it's not necessarily going to make a significant difference mm. yeah i agree on the other hand though like if they were having i don't know a really sugary yogurt that i don't know like the yog plate or something which mm. has like sugary vanilla yogurt and then maybe they were having some cocoa pops in there as well then mm. sure the phylum husk would probably help a little bit mm. but i don't think that's this individual per se mm. but the other side of the coin which i wanted to get at is maybe they're maybe they're in a weight maintenance phase or i don't know i always speak like a bodybuilder saying maintenance or surplus or deficit but like maybe they are just maintaining their weight and they're still this hungry in which sense i would probably want to look at things a little bit further maybe it might be worthwhile for them to gain some weight because appetite regulation should be very well done by the body so if you are a healthy weight range then you shouldn't be hungry all the time and if you are then you're either not fueling yourself well potentially or maybe there are some more medical circumstances that need to be investigated like i don't know maybe a thyroid like hyperthyroidism mm. potentially yeah, I completely agree in the sense that appetite, you know, if it's upregulated or downregulated, there's certainly ways to try to mitigate that. But again, there's no one thing that's going to completely take you from hungry to fully satisfied, right? Mm -hmm. if, especially if it's something that's kind of hanging over you all the time. Yeah. So yeah, I guess if I were to do a consult with this person, then I would ask more of those questions. And like these sorts of questions are hard to answer on a podcast because we can't quiz the individual. Mm. I don't know, maybe it would be cool to, to do like a consult over the podcast. Mm. But then again, I'm sure a lot of the, the audience would try and give their own say. <laughs> it wouldn't really work out in my opinion. But also I think that the reason why this person might be considering adding phylum husk to their yogurt is because people generally associate fiber with greater satiation, feeling mm. fuller for longer. And yes, there's no denying that fiber it does slow down gastric emptying. It does help us stay a little bit more satiated. But I wouldn't argue that it's quite to the same extent of actually having a bit more food volume or at least a bit more hydration within your food. So if you're simply just trying to add more fiber to your diet, I think that someone actually might benefit a bit more from adding some actual fruit into their yogurt. So rather than just a tablespoon or two of phylum husk, rather adding something like some strawberries into their yogurt. And also they're going to have a larger food volume to eat. They're also going to have to have a longer time actually masticating and chewing that food and digesting that food. They'll get some additional nutrients too from something like the strawberries. So it's, again, it's not always just about adding additional fiber to your diet that's going to majorly help satiate you just eating a higher volume of food in general. Of course, there's a limit to that mm. you can certainly exceed, but that would personally be my go-to if you wanted to try to actually bulk up a meal a little bit. Yeah, 
I mean, trust us to turn a super simple question. <laughs> All they wanted to know was, could they add some phylum hearts? You can do whatever you want, man. Go <laughs> yeah. for it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the short answer is yes. Like, there's nothing stopping you. Can't not... say I've never ever done that before, though, personally. Mm -hmm. I think that, yeah, yogurt, it's very nice because it's super duper smooth. Like, I don't know what it would be like with the little phylum flakes in it, but hell, you know, try it. Tell us how it is. <laughs> mm, maybe they could blend it up in there, potentially. Yeah. I know I used to, in prep, when I was quite food focused, I, I would try and avoid doing this next time but like i tried blending some phylum husk with the egg white powder mm -hmm. so that turned into like a pancake mm. and that worked quite well i actually found that on instagram but like it's just not worth the the scale weight variances yeah. in my opinion it's hard to track as well like how many calories is it truly because it's mainly dietary fiber that sort of stuff yeah i'm the same like i used to do half and half with oats and oat bran mm. and sure it helps thicken it up you can add a little bit more water but boy you get a lot more bloated from a yeah. lot of oat bran compared to the, just your average oats and again it's it's not worth it because you're like I'm still hungry. And then yeah. the next day, your scale weight's up by a few hundred grams. You're like, God damn it. <laughs> gotta have phylum husk and oat bran. Sometimes it kind of just comes back to ultimately, you just gotta embrace the hunger, suck mm. it up. You know, it's going to be there. So uh, yeah, there's ways yeah. you can try to get around it. But ultimately, if you're just like, I'm just gonna eat my yogurt. <laughs> yeah, and that's something interesting that I did in my first prep compared to my second is, in my first prep, I was more rushed for time with my food preparation and I therefore had much simpler meals. And I think that correlated to much more linear scale weight decreases mm. uh, compared to my most recent prep where I definitely did not really have a lot of diet foods, processed diet foods. I had a lot of non-processed diet foods. So lots more vegetables and things like oat bran etc mm. which definitely fluctuated my and even things like popcorn which fluctuated my weight a lot mm -hmm. mm. yeah so it's just like what are you willing to tolerate sort of thing like you obviously want to have a nutritional plan that's sustainable that you enjoy that yes is somewhat satiating you but also you just don't want to give yourself head spins with being like oh i know i'm in an energy deficit but i ate a whole drum cabbage and I ate a bag of phylum husk and well, yeah. I, I only had 200 grams of yogurt alongside it. <laughs> I should have just had the yogurt, you know? And then I like the thing as well in a comp prep is that like ultimately you are doing this to try to look and feel your best and your most confident in your now body, we're right? This person's a competitor. <laughs> <laughs> so many assumptions, but I, I just think about this too, in the sense that we're always like trying to run from hunger but then sometimes you just end up almost sacrificing the look of your physique. Like mm. you could I show mean, it's up. It's also and... easy for us to say this when mm. we're not hungry. Mm. Both of us are in a surplus. I know. So. You're like, it's totally worth the trade-off. Like I will eat a cabbage before I go do my workout. But then you go, you go to the gym and you're looking awesome. You know, you're lean. You've got veins popping everywhere, but your abdomen. And then you just have this like little belly and you're like, man, I could have taken some wicked photos today, but I'm not feeling it anymore. And now that's messing with my head. And yeah, again, I the best way I can describe it is head spins. So if you find that the phylum husk is starting to do that to you, just eat the yogurt. Mm. Well, I think the final question that we'll answer, we had one about apparel, mm -hmm. I think. So what did that person say? It said, are you releasing any merch anytime soon? 
Yeah, so I think often, I think we spoke about our new apparel recently, but that's assuming that everyone listens to each episode, which mm-hmm. they don't, let's be honest. So mm-hmm. I think we'll do like a quick recap of, of what we have available and then what's to come Absolutely. without spoiling too much. So a few, I think in October last year, we released uh, so just some TBD apparel. Like you can buy them in, in normal fit or oversized fit, just depending on, on what kind of fit you want and how it to look. But those are just 100% cotton tees and they have our TBD logo uh, on the, not the pocket, but in that kind of region mm-hmm. on, on the, I think, left-hand side. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if you want to support us or support the podcast, then you can purchase those. They're on our website. I think Tierra always puts a link in the show notes. Yeah. So those are just great oversized gym tees with mm. the TBD logo. They come in black and white and navy <laughs> and a very good quality shirt for sure. Very proud of making those. Mm. But exciting that we do have some new apparel coming in uh, it's actually being printed this week for our shirts and we should be receiving the shipment within one to one and a half weeks which actually isn't branded with the bodybuilding dietitians on the shirt but in fact we've been working alongside our designer to create a new logo that I think everyone is really going to like if they are here in Australia and they're somewhat involved in bodybuilding can help or anyone internationally can buy them oh yeah absolutely uh but it, i think it's really going to help bring a community together and i think that it has a hell of a lot of potential and i'm just really excited for this first release yeah we only decided to create actually less than 50 because we're going to be giving a few away for free so if you want to get them then get in quick and again like you'll have some it's mainly going to be oversized but depending on on how big or small you are mm-hmm. you might be able to get a normal fitting one but i would say for the majority of people they it's it's mainly an oversized fit yeah and they're all coming out in just black with this first release as mm. well but very very excited for that so definitely keep your eyes peeled on the gram for a what they're going to look like Mm. yeah so make sure you're following our tbd page where we'll release it and again if you're overseas you can buy them we can ship internationally Mm. and obviously we can ship domestically or even if you come to the posing workshops we often go there at least to the ones in brisbane so we can bring you along one so we don't you don't have to pay for shipping yeah how convenient Mm. well many exciting things in the pipeline (laughs) Yeah, so we'll finish this episode with one thing that we learned this past week. Would you like to go first? No, you can go first. Okay, well, something that I learned this past week is a strategy to actually help myself fall back asleep because there's a lot of things going on in life right now which are exciting the hell out of me. And ultimately, I don't really want to be asleep. I like being awake right now and I like just waking up and getting after it because... We're in the process of trying to buy a house right now. We're also designing and we're releasing this new apparel line. Many of my clients are less than two months out now from all of their shows. So it's a busy time and I'm loving life and I want to be awake and doing shiz. But sometimes my brain's ticking over so much that I will wake up in the early hours of the morning and I can't get back to sleep. But it's at a godly hour where I just don't need to be awake, like 2.30 a.m. And I'm like please at least like sleep until 4.30 or 5. Now, what I've actually started to do, which I've heard some other sleep scientists talk about on podcasts, is use a bit of reverse psychology because 
when my brain starts ticking over at like 2.30 a.m., like I just start having a lot of ideas and I just become a lot more active uh, mentally. But what I've started to do now is just repeat over and over again in my head, not out loud because I'd probably wake you up. (laughs) But I just say, don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. And I just repeat that to myself, that bit of reverse psychology. Or I say like, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. So ultimately I'm trying to tell myself not to go to bed and it works. And lo and behold, I fall back to sleep. Mm. I mean, personally, that doesn't make any sense to me. (laughs) But reverse psychology, it does, it does work. But that's the thing. If you ever wake up at a godly hour, which it'll happen again in future sometime in prep, because ultimately people do get very anxious and stressed out. They, they keep looking at their watch or their clock and they're like, oh God, you know, I've been awake for 45 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half. Like I just want to fall asleep. Actually just start telling yourself like, stay awake, stay awake, don't fall asleep. And you just repeat that. But if you're alert, then if you're trying to then stay awake. I'm just telling you, anecdotally, and of one, it's been working for me lately and I've been Mm. getting back to bed. Well, that's good. Yeah, it is very good. Because again, like I need to have a really good night's sleep in order to kick butt during the day. Mm. And grow muscle. Yes, that's right. (laughs) On these very long limbs. (laughs) I'm more jacked than you, I tell (laughs) you. How much more do I weigh than you? 30 kilos? Yeah, I don't know. But it's probably, I don't know. Fat. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You said it, not me. Uh, (laughs) And a bit of hair. Um, Jack, what did you learn this week? You you probably have more hair in total than me. That is true. (laughs) On my head. (laughs) Yeah, well, across the whole body quite easily. Especially since I recently shaved my legs. Yes, well. (laughs) (laughs) Jack, what did you learn this week? Yeah, so I, I think I learned something that you might not actually know. Ooh. And it's about one of the sugar alcohols, erythritol. Mm-hmm. And it's actually the only sugar alcohol which is metabolized before it gets to the large intestine, which is why there's erythritol doesn't actually have or is not associated with the di- same di- digestive discomforts as the other sugar alcohols because it only contains like 0 to 0.25 calories per gram, which is pretty much negligible. And it's excreted by urine. So that's why it doesn't actually have a chance to get to the large intestine where it can be fermented. And that's where the fermentation and uh, altering the osmotic balance in the large intestine is when water comes in and you get diarrhea, etc. And then the fermentation of it releases gas, essentially, which is why you get bloating and and flatulence. Gosh darn. Well, Mm. that's very, very interesting. Yeah. So isn't that just more of a reason then that manufacturers should add more erythritol? to their Mm. products rather than things like sorbitol and mannitol which really are giving people a lot of gas yeah but they all have different uh flavor and sweetness profiles as Mm. well so i'm not sure maybe erythritol is a very very mild sweetness compared Mm. to sugar i'm not i'm not actually sure about that but i didn't because we did a recent post on sugar alcohols and i kind of like doing those because it's an opportunity for me to review the research again and and then create something out of it. So mm. that's something I learned while reading it. I've always found it just so amazing with some people's palates, how they can be so specific about how, mm, that left a metallic aftertaste <laughs> in my mouth. Because 
for years now, I've been using a type of artificial sweetener called saccharin. They're these tiny little tablets that I just buy from Woolworths, and I put those in my coffee, in my protein cakes, whatever I kind of want to be sweet. But it's just saccharin. But some people say they don't use saccharin because it does leave like a metallic aftertaste in their mouth. And I'm like, I've never had that. It's literally just Yeah, but sweet. you like use one. Some no, people might use 10. No, I actually use, well, I use like three in a coffee yeah. sort of thing. Or like maybe two in a protein cake. You're right. Some people do go to town and they want it really, really sweet. But it even comes back to people how like they won't drink Diet Coke because they're like, oh no, it leaves a bad aftertaste in my mouth compared yeah. to real Coke. If you Coke. drink normal Coke as opposed to Diet Coke just because of the taste, you're... <laughs> Get out of here. You're impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Impressive, but wise hmm. <laughs> we'll discuss that your palate later. is very discerning yes yeah anyway we'll leave that there <laughs> but guys thank you very much for tuning into this podcast if you did enjoy it please remember to take a screenshot post it to your instagram stories tag jack tag myself tag tbd if you are feeling friendly please feel free to leave us a five-star review on itunes or spotify and we'll catch you next week